The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress and other high-profile public figures. After the headlines, I interviewed John Katz, who is the president of the Santa Monica Democratic Club and an elected delegate to the California Democratic Party. We will go over the most important election-related topics. Then later, you will hear a portion of an interview that I gave to Steve Sievers of Bionic Buzz about what's happening in Artsakh and the celebrity PSA campaign that I helped to produce to bring attention to the ethnic cleansing of Armenians in Artsakh. Here are some headlines from this morning and over the weekend. So tomorrow is election day. Pre-election voting has now surpassed two-thirds of all ballots cast during the 2016 presidential election. More than 91.6 million Americans have voted so far, uh, as a majority of states are reporting record early voting turnout in the 2020 election. These votes represent about 43% of registered voters nationwide, according to a survey of election officials in all 50 states and Washington, D.C., by CNN, Edison Research, and Catalyst. 16 states have already seen more than half of their registered voters cast ballots ahead of the November 3rd, which is tomorrow, election. Nationwide, uh, the more than 91.6 million ballots already cast represent about 67% uh, of the more than 136.5 million ballots cast in the 2016 presidential election. Vice President Biden leads Trump by 10 points in final pre-election NBC News Wall Street Journal poll. The Democratic nominee leads President Trump 52% to 42% nationally. Of the 68% of voters who say they have already voted or plan to vote early, Biden is ahead 61% to 35%. But among the 28% of voters who say that they'll be voting on Election Day, Trump leads 61% to 32%. In 12 combined battleground states of Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Maine, Michigan, Minnesota, North Carolina, New Hampshire, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, Biden is ahead of Trump by six points, 51% to 45%. The U.S. continued to set new highs for COVID-19 infections this week, with Thursday marking a record 88,521 daily new cases, bringing the seven-day average of daily new cases to a new high at 76,590. A CNBC analysis of data from Johns Hopkins University showed hospitalizations are climbing in 41 states. The following data was compiled by Johns Hopkins University. Global cases of COVID-19 are more than 45 million uh, uh, Global death is at 1.18 million. COVID-19 cases in the U.S. is at 9 million. And 229,293 people have died of COVID-19 in the U.S. The U.S. set a record for single-day new COVID-19 cases 
with 97,088 reported on Friday, according to a total from NBC News. The tally marks the fifth time since Thursday, October 22nd, that the U.S. has set a fresh high, according to NBC News figures, and the second consecutive day when more than 90,000 new cases were reported. The NBC News count indicates 969 deaths from the virus in the U.S. on Friday, compared with 982 deaths the day prior. Azerbaijan and Turkey's genocidal war and ethnic cleansing of Armenians of Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, escalated over the weekend. A video footage released shows Azerbaijani armed forces used white phosphorus munitions prohibited by the Geneva Conventions in Artsakh. When white phosphorus shell explodes, the chemical inside reacts with the air, creating a thick white cloud. When it comes in contact with the flesh, it can maim and kill by burning to the bone. Meanwhile, several captured Syrian mercenaries were interviewed and admitted that Turkey promised them $2,000 a month to fight for Azerbaijan, plus $100 for beheading of every Armenian. So far, Azerbaijan has broken three ceasefires and last week's agreement not to target civilians. Just a reminder that you can register to vote tomorrow. Yes, tomorrow on election day, you can still register to vote. After voting, you can track your ballot. Now in California, you can go to sos.ca.gov and anywhere outside of California, you can go to ballottracks.com. That's ballottrax.com. If you have any Election-related questions or issues, challenges, go to vote.org. The Blunt Post with Vic. John Katz has served as the president of the Santa Monica Democratic Club since 2017, and he has been a member of the club since 2010. He is also an elected delegate to the California Democratic Party, where he serves on the Affirmative Action Committee. Additionally, John is the vice chair of the Westside Democratic Headquarters, which provided the grassroots army of volunteers that flipped seven House seats in California in 2018. Hello, John. Welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic on this day before Election Monday. How are you? Good, Vic. Thanks for having me back. How you been? I've been, I've been pretty good. Busy, you know, yeah. handling everything that everyone else is and uh, leading up to tomorrow's moment of truth, I think. It's the big day. You know, we've been waiting for this for four years since the moment we heard that Trump won in 2016. It's all been building up to... What are we going to do in 2020 to make sure that we that we get rid of him and he's just a one-term president? And we've seen over the last few months, years, a huge resistance team being built, whether that's in the Democratic Party, indivisible groups, and all sorts of people coming together. You now even have Republicans with the Lincoln Project getting on board, all with this one goal. And now we see the result or the apparent stakes where we are heading into Election Day is Joe Biden has, uh, depending on which polls you look at, an eight to 10 point lead. So we're in very good position heading into Election Day. Well, you just answered my one of my first questions, which uh, it's good news, the the lead. And of course, just like you, I look at different polls and, you know, leave out the margin of error and then the margin of trickery. 
that could happen. So that's the big thing: the margin of trickery, right? The margin of shenanigans. So yeah. I'm trying to look at polls, and I'm thinking anything where Biden is up by less than five could be dangerous. So I'm looking at states like Georgia and Florida, where they have Republican governors who are very Trumpy. And right in 2018 using suppression and i'm just assuming you know if we win those two states that's great that's icing on the cake but you can't count that towards your 270 because there's just too much room for funny business yeah absolutely funny business and especially florida florida's governor is pretty much a part of the trump uh, public right. relations team along with uh, that's exactly right uh, yeah. william barr so so we, we're both optimistic, cautiously going into this. There's definitely a lot of momentum as far as the presidential election itself. And so the next one is, which is something that I'm a little bit nervous about, is flipping the Senate yeah. blue. Tell me about well, that. That's another one where we really made a lot of movement starting in the beginning of this election cycle, where you look at the opportunity to flip uh, the Senate, and I was like, well, we would have to win every single seat and hold on to Alabama to even have a chance. And the way that things have gone over the past two years has put, uh, you know, four seats, four or five seats squarely into contention. A few of them are looking really strong. You know, we've been calling for Arizona since since the end of the midterms in 2018. We've been, and then we started calling into North Carolina, and now those two states plus Colorado and Maine seem like the path of least resistance to get us to the Senate majority. And we have a bunch of backups, and uh, you know, there's two in Georgia, there's one in Iowa. Uh, the you know, so we have a whole bunch of options. There's there's lots of opportunities that are more long shots like Alaska, Kansas, but uh, and of course South Carolina. That would be a great icing on the cake as well to get rid of Lindsey Graham on top of everything else. Yeah. So let's start with Mitch McConnell. Now I'm thinking that's probably not going to happen, right? He's going to get reelected. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, Amy McGrath has so much money and yet she's still down by double digits. So I think that it's just a matter of math in Kentucky, you know, only, uh, they have a Democratic governor, but it seems like only if your last name is Bashir can you win it as a Democrat there. I think that um, Amy McGrath is just not going to be able to do it, and Mitch McConnell has such a strong grasp of Kentucky politics. But the thing we can do to humble Mitch McConnell is to make him in the minority and to give him, if we can get a 52 seat majority or even 53 seats or something like that there's not going to be much room for mitch mcconnell to do all of the stuff he likes to do yeah. uh, to manipulate the procedure yeah like holding back about over 300 bills since um, 2019 yeah and also all the judges that he blocked under obama that he then opened up for trump and we know we're, we're seeing the outcome of that in all sorts of cases being decided throughout the judiciary and all yeah. the way up to the Supreme Court, where we are seeing the Supreme Court, uh, the conservatives on there are setting the groundwork. Three of the of the nine justices on the Supreme Court worked on the Bush v. Gore case to establish um, the precedent that they're now citing in terms of why they're not going to count all sorts of ballots that come in. Right. So it's it's 
it's really a new form of suppression that they came up with. Basically, Democrats have to win by such a large uh, electoral vote majority that you can't block one or two states in the courts. It's just it's too overwhelming. Yeah. So there's lots on the plate. I mean, one thing that's definitely changed in the last few months is the appetite among rank and file Democrats and even centrist Democrats to make some of these changes, you know, to rebalance the court or to, you know, get rid of the electoral college. Um, There's all sorts of reforms that seem to be more on the table, adding states that, of course, is something we're hearing more about now. So I think that that's a really good sign that those things that were once thought of as you know, far left idealist concepts you're now hearing talked about totally in the mainstream. And hopefully, hopefully, and I want to go back to some of the uh, Senate seats that are really important, but I just wanted to add that hopefully that would include expanding the Supreme Court to 11 justices. uh, Right. Because (laughs) at least, yeah, what's happened is just not acceptable. So going back to um, Lindsey Graham and Jamie Harrison, that's, that's pretty, that's a tight race right now. Yeah, it's a really close race. I watched the Senate, or I watched their debate a few weeks ago where Jamie Harrison had brought his own uh, plexiglass because uh, Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Graham didn't want to uh, wear any protection or, or uh, take a test in advance or put on his mask. So, yeah, that was good. And Jamie Harrison is a really good debater. I mean, yeah, he uh, is a former party chair, and so he really knows... Uh, how to make democratic arguments. And I think he's showing that there are ways to win in Southern states that we typically think of as states that, that can't be won. And he's showing, uh, and the same thing with uh, Mike Espy in, in Mississippi there, we're seeing that there are ways to win in these places. How do you think that's going to go? Uh, you know, it's, I'm afraid to make any predictions, but I agree <laughs> with you that it, in uh, South Carolina, it's very, very close. Yeah. And I think that uh, it's going to be a matter of turnout. And as these things always are, you know, exactly how many people come, exactly how much suppression there is. But it, it, the poll, the polls are neck and neck. I think if I would have to say that Graham probably has a slight edge there, but there's so much momentum and so much happening right now that it's just almost impossible to say. Okay. How about Susan Collins and Sarah Gideon in Maine? Yes, that one is looking really good. So I was a little worried about that one at first because the primary was so late. And it was a pretty competitive primary. But then when Sarah Gideon came out of that ahead and all of a sudden the polling started narrowing, narrowing. And now pretty much all the polls have Gideon leading Collins. So that one I'm really excited about. It seems like uh, she, she cast one last vote for... Uh, for uh, Barrett on her way out the door. Yeah. Oh, no, she didn't, right? No, she voted against Barrett, actually. Uh, Susan Collins was like, yeah, she was the only yeah. one, pretty much. <laughs> right. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jorami, and you are listening to my interview with John Katz, the president of the Santa Monica Democratic Club. Any Senate seats that you're very confident we're going to flip? Yeah, well, so my... My pet project all cycle has been Arizona. Um, we started calling there. It was still 2018. It was December of 2018 that we were, we were calling there. And we had found out that um, Republican operatives in Arizona had 
purged uh, people from the voting rolls, anyone who didn't vote in the last two elections. So we started this cycle calling Democrats in Arizona and telling them, hey, you need to get re-registered. We need to get you set up to vote. And then slowly we got Mark Kelly and we started talking about Mark Kelly. Then the next thing you knew, Arizona was starting to look good on the federal level. And now we're even making calls down ballot to help out in other Arizona races. So Arizona is starting to look really good to the point where, like, remember, like a decade ago, uh, where Colorado and and Virginia were seen as purple states. And then all of a sudden they just now we're just taking them for granted. And I think that Arizona may hopefully be moving in that direction where it's going to start becoming more of a blue state. Yeah. That's great news. How about any other states, any other Senate seats? The other one that, that looks really good is is Colorado. So if you combine Colorado, Maine, Arizona, and North Carolina, if we win those four, and then we can even lose Doug Jones in Alabama, who's, I mean, you got to hand it to this guy in Alabama. He, he voted to impeach or he voted to remove Donald Trump from office in Alabama. And so he's probably going to lose his reelection. The polls aren't looking good, but you never know. But it's a very, very pro-Trump state. Yeah, this so, is a this is a difficult election because it's not election as usual. COVID nineteen yeah has right. changed. You know all the metrics. So many people have voted. Um, you know, voted through mail, and uh, we don't know who's actually going to show up. Um, because of you know being afraid of COVID, rightfully so. So um, yeah, I I hear you there. It's difficult to predict, and you know we've learned that polls aren't hundred percent reliable all the time. Was there anything else you wanted to add before we go to a little bit more hyper local? No, sure. The only thing I would say is I guess um, we have to, we have to make sure that we are reminding ourselves because on election night I know it's going to be like April Fool's Day. On, on social media where everything you look at is is false right and i know that i'm going to fall for some tweet that i see that says biden won texas or something and i'm going to flip out and we we have to keep reminding ourselves that all the results that come in on election night are suspect to you know let's wait for the voting let's wait for some trends to come in start seeing a lot more of the votes and and I just think that we're not going to know the results of this thing for a long time, include, especially in some of those Senate races. It's just, you know, we just have to wait and we have to remember to be patient because uh, otherwise we're going to be psyching ourselves out all night. Yeah. And there are always uh, those tweets or other social media posts that want people to stay home because, hey, they, they can give up now. Their candidate uh, didn't win. That's so right. don't let anything go. Uh, keep you from going to the polls if that's how you're voting absolutely uh, until yeah. the bitter end so uh in terms of you know you are the president of the santa monica democratic club and yeah. you've been involved um, not just on a national level but also regional as well as local so uh, if we can talk about california what are some sure. areas that you've been working on yeah well um in california you know we we uh I'm I'm on the I'm a uh, delegate to the state party, right. and so in that capacity, um, you know we've had a tumultuous couple of years. We had a election for a new chair. Um, we've had uh, 
a lot of stuff going on in the state party that has been pretty interesting. Um, the party's been figuring out how to be more ethical and transparent in its funding. And they've also been thinking about um, how they can have a more fair election process for the ADEM elections, which will be coming up in January. That's actually the election where people get to become delegates to to have a voice in the state party. And so, you know, they're, they're making reforms in that sense, and the party's working on lots of, uh, you know, ballot measures this cycle. You know, some, some of the big ones, you know, Prop 21, which is expanding rent control. Prop 22, which is uh, this ballot measure that Uber and Lyft put on to, to try to get their drivers to become or to, to exempt them from having to pay their employees as employees. So there's lots of high stakes in that sense this year in California, too. So let me stop you there. So 21 is a yes and 22 is a no, right? For me, yeah, that's right. And, and I think most Democrats would agree on those two. Okay, yeah, that's... Uh... Prop, Prop 21, which is the rent, rent control expansion, or it allows, it allows local local municipalities to pursue rent control in their jurisdiction. So um, that one's great. I know in Santa Monica, there's no way I'd be able to live here without rent control. I mean, it's such a great, it's such a great opportunity. It provides opportunities for so many people to move into the, these nice neighborhoods that we have in Southern California. Yeah. And some of them you can't move into anymore, period, (laughs) even with rent control. That's that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so expensive, but you know, we got lucky. We found a place and we can stay here. And with everything going on now, with the economy, I mean, look, I I worked for a TV show and the TV show no longer is getting made because of the economic situations going on. Yeah. So people are losing their jobs. And it's good for me and my wife to know that we know what the rent is going to be next month and a year from now. Yeah. Rent control. Absolutely. Without it, it would be uh, even more disastrous in California and L.A. County, especially. We already have such a major issue. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jorami, and you are listening to my interview with John Katz, the president of the Santa Monica Democratic Club. Yeah, then you have that other one, Prop 22. This one is is on a a really strong no on it. So this one is about... uh, like I was saying, so Lyft and Uber and I think DoorDash and Instacart, they put in $200 million to support this ballot measure. It's the most expensive ballot measure I think that's ever happened in the United States in the history of ballot measures. And you think to yourself, these companies are spending $200 million to make sure that they don't have to provide benefits to their workers. But if they instead had just spent that $200 million on their employees, right. then they all could have had the benefits that they're fighting so hard to stop them from. Yeah. That's, um... So that one is an obvious uh, no for me. I mean, we, we need to – look, I, I have worked freelance. I've worked as an independent contractor. And these apps, these gig apps, they don't, treat, they don't care about you as the worker. They care about the customer. They're the ones who are paying. And so we really need to make sure that these industries are regulated and, and we're not having people coming around trying to break the rules, which yeah. is what Lyft and Uber are doing. I mean, Uber drivers, I know a few Uber drivers, they're working 12, 14-hour days just That's to right. make ends yeah. meet. 
So that's right. Now yeah. to take that away from them too, it's just uh, it's really um, uh, unfathomable. And when you see about a year ago, I think it was the the new CEO or chairperson, I'm not sure whom, did this whole campaign, this PR campaign, and saying we're going to do business differently in this. And, that. and I'm thinking. Why don't you start with your employees? You know, treat them exactly. a little bit better. Right. You know, don't always think about your uh, stockholders and your top C-suite executives' right. bonus packages. But you know about all this. So I want to ask you something, John, because um, as an Armenian American, I've been sort of on the edge about what's happening in Artsakh, which is also yeah. known as Nagorno-Karabakh, a historical part of Armenia, which. Stalin, in 1921, just randomly put it under the Azerbaijan-Soviet rule, and they tried to reconnect with Armenia for decades. Uh, it didn't happen. They finally declared their independence in the late 80s, early 90s. And, uh, of course, it's been just over a month since Azerbaijan, with the help of Turkey, unleashed this genocidal war of ethnic cleansing. Right. And they've brought in... ISIS, Syrian, Libyan, Pakistani mercenaries, and just unleashed just this fury of illegal weaponry that are banned. And surprisingly, uh, European leaders have been not that effective in trying to combat this. Of course, they've made their statements and letters of condemnation and this and that. Uh, I think President Macron of France has been the most uh, resolute in that. American Members of Congress, um, a lot of them have been very vocal about it and supported to recognize Artsakh, which will take care of this problem to a degree, mm -hmm. and to impose sanctions on Turkey and Azerbaijan. And they include uh, Congressman Frank Pallone and Adam Schiff, Congresswoman uh, Jackie Speer, Grace Napolitano. But there's still, there's still, it's not enough, obviously, because they're slaughtering people and. Right. Of course, Azerbaijan did this on purpose, the timing. It's, you know, perfect for them because the world is preoccupied with COVID, rightfully so. And uh, we are, you know, even more preoccupied with the election as well. What do you think is not happening for this, for the U.S. to intervene to really do something substantial? Totally. Well, I mean, I think the answer to that is that the United States government functions by uh reflecting the leadership and we have a president of the united states who does not see uh any reason to get involved in any conflict or any uh, area whether it's domestic or international unless it directly affects him personally politically or financially well said. and so in in this case you know we understand that um, it's not enough for a, a few dozen Congress members to send out some tweets. There has to be much more action than that. And what normally you'd expect to see is the president of the United States putting out some kind of call to action that then would instigate some kind of discussion in Congress about, you know, whether to take further action. So yeah. we saw that, for example, in, with Libya in, in, uh, during Obama's presidency. Right. And so uh, I think that, um, you know, it's obvious that, you know, the, the role that we play internationally in foreign policy in this country is, 
has obviously grown uh, way larger than than any of us would like. And the thing that that we are good at is mediating in these conflicts. And and um, I think that we we really uh, need to get. It just speaks to why we need new leadership um, more broadly. Because I don't trust Donald Trump to go and and do anything in this conflict. Um, you know, and, yeah. and frankly, it's not only him. I mean, we look at the history of, of Armenia and we understand that it, Democrats and Republicans alike have been denying that the genocide existed there for many decades. and Until uh, last year. Right. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a nice microcosm of how Donald Trump is only um, the culmination of many, yeah. many factors in our politics that have brought us to this point. You made your point really well and clearly, and unfortunately, there's a sad irony, and that's when you said, unless something affects Donald Trump directly, he doesn't want to get involved. And the irony there, and Congresswoman Jackie Speer actually tweeted about this yesterday, is that Trump has two towers in Turkey, and he's building one in Azerbaijan. Right, and right, uh, right. Congresswoman Speer, I, I don't remember the amount, but it was in the tens of millions that she posted Donald Trump made from Turkey. And That's so, right, of yeah. course, and he's not going to offend uh, Erdogan, who's basically a terrorist. Right. And, um, you know, in the last couple of weeks, uh, Donald Trump has been in a very weird, awkward way, kind of like at that dance he did on the stage. Uh, trying to woo the Armenian vote and uh, in just a very condescending uh, way, sort of complimenting Armenians, like that's enough that, you know, people are being slaughtered around the world. And let me just say, Armenians are really hardworking, good people. Uh, Like, we're just going to go to the polls and vote for you. You know, we haven't forgotten that last November, the House almost unanimously passed the Armenian Genocide Resolution Act. Um, from the 11 uh, members of the House who stayed, most of them were part of the Congressional Turkish Caucus, so that was expected. And right. he tried to delay the vote in the Senate, and he did for a long time until there was finally a vote, and the Senate unanimously uh, voted on it. And during all of this, he hosted Erdogan at the White House for a week. That's right. Um, and he boldly came out and said, it was not genocide which was a huge slap in the face. Yeah, it's horrible. President Trump, I don't need your compliments. You will never have my vote. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jorami, and you are listening to my interview with John Katz, the president of the Santa Monica Democratic Club. It's a a very sad situation, and yes, you're right. It, it, It has to trickle down from leadership. Unfortunately, even if we do win, which I think we will tomorrow, President Biden won't be in office until January. So that is something that I'm very worried about is this lame duck period where, first of all, you have part one, which is if Trump doesn't concede or if he attempts to stop the counting and there's something going on with that. But then let's assume it's a big blowout and he can't deny the win and Biden is going to be sworn in unquestionably on January 20th, then the question becomes, what does he and Mitch McConnell do in the interim? Right. There's all kinds of stuff that, that could happen that is, I mean, locally, most of it would require the House to, to go along. So he can't 
do that many bills, but there's all kinds of judges that could be appointed and people to pardon. Yep. Yeah. Oh, the party. Get half, ready. half of his cabinet, all the party. criminals. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We'll so see. that, and that is just something else that speaks to, you know, um, I think that there's a lot of appetite right now and we would be crazy not to do it as our first bill, you know, this HR one government reform stuff that we really need to put in right away if we're going to have a real democracy. Yeah, I guess we have to uh, take it uh, one step at a time. Right. So well, we're going to, you know, we'll get our win tomorrow or, or in the days to follow as they count the votes. Yeah. And then we're really going to have to get on Biden right away. And hopefully all of these people that have come along for the ride. I mean, I know that you and me, Vic, and all the people listening will be, you know, still staying active and doing all the work needed to push President Biden. But it's going to take everybody, everyone who joined Indivisible, everybody who started going to to do postcarding and phone banks. We need to stay on Biden to make sure that he enacts all the stuff, because if we all take our foot off the gas and go on vacation uh, because Biden gets elected, then we're just setting ourselves up because now the Republicans and the autocrats know exactly what to do to gain power again. And if we don't change the game on them and, and make it to that real democracy flourishes in this country, then we're going to have somebody come back who's twice as bad as Trump because he'll actually be smart enough to know how to handle his power. Yeah, like Trump Jr. <laughs> or exactly. Ivanka. Well, no, I said they would be smart. <laughs> yeah, I like that. We need a little humor um, when you were saying that. So just real quick, uh, any hyper-local um, races that you're sort of looking at uh, in different well, cities? Well, you know, uh, our friend Seppi Shine is running yes. in West Hollywood. I know that we'll be uh, both following that one really closely. And me here, you know, in in Santa Monica, we have a pretty interesting city council election where we have uh, five challengers running or five uh, incumbents running and and a bunch of challengers who are, you know, running a a reactionary style campaign against the incumbents. Um, So that'll be interesting to see how that one goes. Um, and then there's there's all sorts, you know, we have uh, this, this really great city council race going in L.A. for for uh, District 4, Nithya Raman against David Rue. Right. And uh, then the other big one, well, then there's there's Gascon and Lacey for, for uh, County DA. Yeah. Then the last big one is for County Supervisor uh, Holly Mitchell and Herb Wesson. So those are, I think, the local races I'm following the closest. So... The race that New York Times called the second most important race of 2020, the district attorney race, how do you think that's going to go? I think that Gascon is going to win. I actually feel pretty good about this one. And the reason I say that is because uh, seeing Eric Garcetti pull his endorsement back and going toward Gascon, to me that, that sounds like someone reading the tea leaves and kind of understanding the way that things are moving right now. Uh, I, I have a feeling that George Gascon got lucky in that there there was a runoff because in between the primary and the runoff, we had the George Floyd uh, murder and we had a, this reckoning with how policing occurs 
in our country. And I think that if it wasn't for that moment, Gascon would have had a really hard time breaking through because of the machine that Lacey has in L.A. But because of that, I think people are much more aware of what a DA does and Jackie Lacey's particular record in that sense and understanding that we need uh, a reformer. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with you. And I hope. Her... Yeah. So I think that that one I'm, I'm kind of optimistic about. Fantastic. John, before we go, is there anything you'd like to add? Any, anything else you want to cover? All I can say is, you know, be careful what you see on election night. We're going to see all kinds of crazy reporting. The first polls that come in, the first results might be, you know, 95% for Trump in one state and then 90% for Biden in the other state. It's all got to sort out. Let's just read a book on election night and <laughs> wait for the full results to come in. Sounds and then the good. other part is take, you know, take a day off. And then after that, we have to get back to work because we are going to have some midterms to fight for. And we're going to expand our Senate majority in the, uh, for President Biden. Absolutely. Um, any shout out or uh, call to action from Santa Monica Democratic Club or just in general? Yeah. So um, actually, everyone's invited um, to our next meeting. It's going to be on the 18th of November. So we're going to have our post-election meeting. It's going to be the last meeting of our year. It's going to be on Zoom. So you can go to our website, uh, SantaMonicaDemocrats.com, and you can find the link to, to uh, sign up for that meeting, but we're going to have um, uh, Assembly Member Miguel Santiago, the chair of the California Democratic Party Black Caucus, Taisha Brown, and also the chair of the Women's Caucus, Christine Pelosi, Nancy's daughter. So wow. it's going to be a nice panel, and we'll discuss. I always want to make sure we book those guests before the election so that if doesn't go well we still have somebody yeah. to rock us to sleep it sounds like <laughs> a great... hopefully it will be a big celebration uh yeah. we'll, we'll be talking about what the plan is for democrats uh, going forward in the biden administration fantastic so that's november 18th and the website is santa monica democrats.com that's right yeah. john thank you for all your wisdom your time Good luck to both of us in the next well, 24 hours. Yes, and thank you, Vic, for, for the work that you do as well, because, uh, you know, you bring attention to a lot of important issues to, to the, the voters in SoCal. We're all grateful for you. My pleasure. Thanks again, John, and we'll talk to all you right, soon. Thanks, Vic. Okay. Bye. That was John Katz, the president of the Santa Monica Democratic Club, a very busy man. Thank you, John, for being on the show today and for your wealth of knowledge. The Blunt Post with Vic. Now, what you're about to hear is a portion of an interview that I gave to Steve Sievers of Bionic Buzz about what's happening in Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, part of Armenia, and what is happening there. And we also talk about a, a celebrity PSA campaign that I helped to produce to bring attention to the humanitarian crisis and the ethnic cleansing that is happening there due to Azerbaijan and Turkey's uh, hostilities. So stay tuned. All right. Well, I'm so excited to talk to you. I want to, I mean, I want to be educated on what's going on, this uh, humanitarian crisis going on in the country of uh, Armenia. And for those who don't know, the, the country like borders Turkey and Iran. It's in Asia. So we'll get into PSA in a second. But what is the actual crisis that's going on right now in the country? Well, <clears throat> it's a little bit difficult for most people because it, uh, 
the region and the history is a little complicated, but I'll give you the quick version. Mm -hmm. Basically, Artsakh, which is also known as the Garna Garabagh, uh, has been a part of Armenia for millennia. In after the Bolshevik Revolution, when Stalin took over, he partisans that section and put it under Azerbaijani Soviet rule, like arbitrarily. And some say that to appease Turkey. So he separated Armenians, a chunk of it, and just sort of put it under Azerbaijani rule. And for decades to follow, um, there was a lot of oppression. There was a lot of violence against Armenians who were Christian in Azerbaijan, which is predominantly a Muslim country. And so toward the end of the 80s, before the fall of the Soviet Union, people of Artsakh, uh, who for decades had been appealing to Kremlin, asking to secede and to re, sort of reconnect with Armenia, uh, finally decided they want to declare their independent, independence. Oh. Well, this came with a price. Azerbaijan carried out pogroms uh, and uh, basically massacred about 30,000 plus people, uh. ethnic Armenians within Azerbaijan and uh, Artsakh. So in 88, Artsakh declared its independence and a war followed, which lasted until 94, when a ceasefire was brokered uh, by Russia, US and France. And ever since then, there have been skirmishes and Azerbaijan's threats and such until September 27th of this year, um, Azerbaijan, which now we know for about a year had been pre-planning this with the help of Turkey, its close ally, it, with financially and, and with military and all of that. They also brought in ISIS, uh, Libyan and Pakistani and, uh, and Syrian mercenaries, uh -huh. uh, paid them to fight. So they unleashed this horrendous genocidal war on Artsakh. Uh, mercilessly shelling uh, civilians, cities, missiles. Um, they're targeting hospitals and nursing homes and schools. Uh, about 65% of Artsakh has fled to Armenia. Uh, it's a very, very dire situation. They're basically, Azerbaijan and Turkey have brokered, it's just broken so many international laws um, United Nations laws and European Union laws, human rights. Mm -hmm. So they are, you know, the, the crisis now is that Azerbaijan will not stop. There were two ceasefires that were brokered by Russia in the last few weeks. Azerbaijan broke both of them. This uh, past week, uh, President Trump brokered a ceasefire with the help of the State Department. Azerbaijan broke that. And the president of Azerbaijan, Aliyev, basically said, I have no intention of this ceasefire. I'm just going to keep going. And Turkey's president, Erdogan, has basically supported him. Uh, and they are sort of, they're just determined to commit genocide. I mean, what they're doing is ethnic cleansing. Dang. Well, yeah. I can see why there's a campaign for this. I'm surprised I, I have know about this and many other people. Yeah. Like, it's not over the news, you know, so... You know, um, in the last year, for as they prepared to do this, 
They hired six public relations and lobbying firms in the US <clears throat> to employ them make, to make sure that they have media placements uh, to confuse people, to put uh, wrong information, lies and propaganda uh, uh, all through international media, but especially US media. Uh, we now about we now know about these firms, and uh, but there's a lot of misinformation out there, and people are confused. Um, and of course, this yeah. was timed perfectly for them to do it while right. the world is preoccupied with COVID, rightfully. Yeah. And we in the U.S. are the further preoccupied with the election. Yeah. So <clears throat> it's it's a very strategic thing that they did. Uh, there are other parties that are also helping them. Uh, it's a very, very ugly situation um, that is happening right now as you and I are speaking. Mm -hmm. uh, there are people being slaughtered. I mean, videos are emerging of uh, captured soldiers and villagers who were beheaded. Oh. And these are videos, videos that were made by <clears throat> Azerbaijani soldiers themselves. So if you can imagine how many others have happened that we don't even have the footage of, and they're confirmed, like BBC has confirmed them, Human Rights Watch and such have um, confirmed. Azerbaijan will not allow any press there. Armenia is open to all members of media to go there. So it's a very intense, um, difficult situation. Oh, absolutely. So there's a, a celebrity PSA going to... Um try to educate people about this. Uh, talk about who's involved in it. Yeah. So USA TV is the, is the big production company mm -hmm. studio that wanted to do something to bring attention of the masses, the American public to it. And they reached out to um, my friend, Nicole, who then contacted me knowing that I have, you know, I have an Armenian American and said, you know, let's let's think about ways we can do this. And I wanted, I thought the best way would be to do PSA, PSAs and bring celebrities in. So we produced the first of the series just um, and released it about a week ago. It has Kim Kardashian, it has Serge Tankian from System of a Down, Ed Begley Jr. who's, you know, brilliant actor, but also an activist. Uh, Andrea Martin, Lawrence Sarian, and, and several others. And now we're working on the second series, which uh, we already have Congressman Adam Schiff and uh, Oscar nominee uh, Sally Kirkland to you know bring attention to this any way we can. And uh, last few days, uh, Sean Penn came out in support of our class, so did Mel Gibson. Oh, that's so awesome. word is getting around, yeah. They, they haven't done a PSA for us, but they did it independently, which is great, no difference, yeah. Is there ways people could donate? Are they sending like community aid over there by any chance or anything or? Yeah, so it's all streamlined to one foundation which has been helping Artsakh for decades because um, Artsakh is very um, isolated and so, it's uh, the organization is called Armenia Fund, and uh, they have collected um, money for the last month. Um, they're you know, very reputable, great organization, do a lot of great work. 
So Armenia Fund is um, the organization to, to go for anyone who wants to donate, uh, et cetera. But for information and resources and uh, media, anything like that, uh, one would go to anca.org. So it's ANCA, Armenian National Committee of America. Uh, they are the leading uh, Armenian American advocacy organization in the US based in Washington, DC. Um, I know you're very busy with lots of other different um, stuff. Uh, you work for the Blunt Post. Um, any other campaigns or any other nonprofits or anything we should know about you're also working on? Honestly, I'm, I'm you know, this, this, this whole thing in Artsakh has just taken over so much of it. I, I, you know, I have my radio show on KPFK, uh, yeah. which is called The Blunt Post with Vic, uh, Monday mornings at 7 a.m. Uh, KPFK 90.7 FM. So, and my show is the election uh, nerve center for KPFK. So last month or so has been nothing but election. Uh, I just interviewed Congressman Adam Schiff. Oh, nice. Um, and I'm also excited about, I'm helping a friend promote her very important film. It's called Disarm Hate. Uh, it's about um, gun violence and the LGBT community. It was inspired by the the Pulse nightclub tragedy in Orlando, Florida. Yeah. So Disarm Hate is uh, basically uh, about a group of activists, LGBTQ activists who get on a bus or an RV, I should say, and cross, uh, go cross country from LA to DC uh, to join a rally for uh, gun control. Uh -huh. uh, it's a fascinating documentary that's out now on Amazon Prime and oh, Hulu perfect. and all kinds of places. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. And my friend, Juliana Brudik, who's the director, and she's been, um, she's received a lot of great reviews. The film is in multiple film festivals. So that's another thing that's uh, sort of happening. Very cool. <clears throat> and like everyone else, just one day at a time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking your time to talk to me and help spread the word for this uh, and keep up the amazing work. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Before we go, I want to thank my extremely talented producer, Ricky Herrera. And uh, of course, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Blunt Post with Vic. Please tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. for another episode. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami. Uh, both Instagram and Twitter, my handle is at Vic Jarami. That's V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. -E the Blunt Post with Vic.